Today, it's going to be my pleasure, my privilege, and honor to interview Dr. Gabor Mate. He is a groundbreaking pioneer. You're going to want to listen and listen carefully, but only if you're ready to have your consciousness expanded, because you're going to hear things that you may have not heard before about chemical dependence, about stress and the mind-body connection, and about our culture itself and how we are creating our own illness. So stay tuned, because right after News and Notes, you're going to hear this interview with Dr. Gabor Mate. Can you teach people to have empathy? That's what we're going to talk about a little bit right now in News and Notes. Empathy is a quality that is integral to most people's lives, and yet the modern world makes it easy to lose sight of the feelings of others. But almost everyone can learn to develop this crucial personality trait. How can you boost your empathy level? That's a question that we ask ourselves. Well, here are three things that have been put out there that might assist in creating, boosting, enhancing your empathy. Make a habit of what's called radical listening. That's be present to what's really going on within, to the unique feelings and needs a person is experiencing at the very moment you're talking to them. Let people have their say. Hold back from interrupting and even reflect back what they've told you so they know you were really listening. There's a term for this, it's called radical listening. Actually, the technique of feeding back to the person what you heard, or perhaps what you felt, was originated by a psychologist named Carl Rogers about 50 years ago. Radical listening can have an extraordinary impact on resolving conflict. Both sides literally repeat back what the other side has said before they themselves speak. Other people have referred to this, by the way, as feedback, giving feedback. Radical listening is now being called, but it's reflecting. It's saying what you think you heard so that the other person can then say to you, yes, that's what I meant to say, or that's not what I meant to say. Another method, look for the human being behind everything. Show an empathetic concern. Look behind the surface of the daily lives. Speak in a way that shows that you're being mindful of what you're saying, that you're listening to what you're saying as you're saying it, and do the same with the other person. Three, uh, a third tactic is to, to become curious about strangers. H- have conversations with strangers. You can meet fascinating people. You can challenge the assumptions and prejudices that we have based on their appearance, their accents, their backgrounds. It's about recovering the curiosity everyone has as children, but which society is so good at beating out of us. Go beyond superficial talk, but be aware. Don't interrogate people. Try to be an an inquirer instead of an examiner. And by the way, these are the kinds of conversations you will find happening at the world's first 
Empathy Museum, which is launching in the United Kingdom in late 2015 and will then be traveling to Australia and other countries. An empathy museum, where instead of borrowing a book, you can borrow a person for conversation. Maybe a Sikh teenager, an unhappy investment banker, or a gay father. In other words, the kind of people you may not get to meet in everyday life. Empathy is the cornerstone of healthy human relationships. Some say that without empathy, a person is emotionally tone-deaf. Try slipping some empathy into your shoes and take an adventure of looking at the world through the eyes of others. What is it, Michael? You've got something to uh, point out to me here? Yes. Okay, thank you. Getting a little word from my technical engineer here, Mike Delora. Okay, what else do we have in news and notes? Well, I wanted to tell you that there's some information going on right now about what is reducing our sex drives. What are sex drive killers for both men and women? If you're on any of the following drugs and feel that your interest in sex is not what it used to be, of course, talk with your health care provider. And don't do anything radical like changing medication when you hear this before checking with your health care provider. But listen to this. The SSRIs. You heard this from uh, Julie Holland last week or two weeks ago when she talked in her book, Moody Bitches, about the negative effect of the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, on sex drive. Yes, a reduced sex drive is one of the sexual side effects that has been linked to the SSRIs. The same for statins. Yes, these drugs do treat high cholesterol, but they can also cause, cause erectile dysfunction. Both men and women taking a statin have been reported to have trouble having orgasms. What else? is a sex drive killer. High blood pressure drugs. These medicines can decrease sexual arousal in a variety of ways. In fact, nearly all classes of high blood pressure lowering drugs can have sex-related side effects. High blood pressure itself is actually a risk for low sex drive. Yes, for sexual arousal and sexual function, you need a good supply of blood to your genital area. However, high blood pressure can decrease blood flow to the penis and the vagina, dampening your desire. In women, high blood pressure can lead to vaginal dryness, which can make sexual intercourse painful. In men, too little blood flow to the penis can cause erectile dysfunction. It's reported that about 30% of people with high blood pressure complain of OD, uh, ED, that is. And, oh, I started with the O because the last warning in terms of uh, decreasing your sexual functioning is obesity. It's actually not the last. I've got two more after that. Being overweight can sap your energy and make you feel less attractive. Both are bad for a healthy sex life. There is a link between low testosterone and erectile dysfunction and obesity as well. The good news is that losing weight can help reduce these negative effects. Sleep apnea. If you have sleep apnea, you stop breathing in short spurts many times during the night. You probably snore loudly too. As a result, you're often tired during the day, which can kill your sex drive. Sleep apnea has been linked to ED. Lack of sleep for any reason can also cause a drop in your testosterone. 
And the last is uh, drug use, particularly nicotine and anabolic steroids. Nicotine constricts blood vessels that limits blood flow to your genitals, and like high blood pressure, constricted blood vessels limits sexual arousal. And last but not least, it's anabolic steroids. Probably not many of you are taking them, but they are the drugs that are used to build muscle. And the problem for men is that your brain thinks these steroids are testosterone, and it shuts down your own testosterone production to your testicles. So folks, give these things some consideration and talk to your healthcare provider. And now, our interview with the distinguished Dr. Gabor Mate. Dr. Mate is a physician, a public speaker, and an award-winning author. His book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, expresses his groundbreaking perspective on addictions, while his unique take on attention deficit disorder is found in his first book, Scattered, a book I have in front of me right now, is called When the Body Says No, Exploring the Stress-Disease Connection. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Gabor. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. I know you're suffering from uh, some kind of an illness that you picked up on a recent trip. How are you doing there? Well, I'm going to cough that or just to burst out any moment, but I'm okay at the moment. I um, Yeah, my, my body said no. I took on too much. You d- the body says no. When you don't, the body will do it. That's what happened. You've been, tra- I, you've been traveling on tour? Yeah, I'm always traveling and speaking. I, I should sometimes read my own books, you know? <laughs> you know, if I may make a quick comment. Yes. The Speaking of when the body says no, the causes of sexual dysfunction that you outlined, uh, the SSRIs, the statins, the hypertension itself, high blood pressure, and the medications that treat it, the obesity, the sleep apnea, the degree sleep, um, the um, the drug use, they can be reduced to one word and one word only, which is stress. Yes. These are stress responses. In other words, whether we're looking at high blood pressure or, or high cholesterol levels, um, or whether we're looking at uh, depression or anxiety, such as what we give the SSRIs for, you're, you're looking at the impact of uh, personal history and social stress, so that in, in Western medical practice, we, we isolate these problems and we say, here's a drug, take it, take a drug. We're not looking at what's really causing it. And if you look at something like hypertension, in the United States, I just recently, 50, 58 million adults are taking antihypertensive medications. 58 million. And that must be close to a quarter of the American adult population of high blood pressure. And the medical profession says, well, we don't know the cause of it. Well, of course we do. It's hypertension, too much tension in people's lives. But everything you listed here can be subsumed under the topic of stress and, and the impact of stress on the body. Gabor, you mentioned we have 58 million people taking high blood pressure medicine. I know you're quite aware of the fact that in the United States, close to 70% of us are obese or overweight. We also have, it's roughly, we don't know the exact numbers, maybe 10% of the population alcoholic. We, we We have these symptoms that are being expressed by the American people. 
What's your opinion? What, what, is, what are the American people telling themselves with these symptoms and others? Well, obesity specifically uh, is a response to trauma. I mean, if you look at the large-scale studies on obesity, it's true that the availability and the um, highly seductive advertising for junk foods uh, make it difficult for people to resist. But actually, people eat junk food. Come closer to your speakerphone, please, Gabor. The junk foods release feel-good chemicals in the brain. And um, when you actually look at who gets obese and who eats too much, it's people that were traumatized in childhood. So essentially, what we're looking at is a highly stressed and traumatized population. So you're saying that the entire American population, or at least 70% of us, are highly stressed. Is that correct? I'm saying that probably closer to 95% of us are highly stressed. And, um, and many of us have suffered trauma in ways we don't even appreciate, we don't understand. And what's the causes of these stresses? How are we doing this to ourselves, Gabor? Well, there are a number of factors. The first one is childhood history, so that um, specifically if you look at populations of drug addicts, um, the trauma is very clear. There are people I worked with in Vancouver, a highly addicted population in what's called the downtown east side. These people were all uh, traumatized in childhood. Uh, the women had all been sexually abused. <coughs> the men had been sexually abused or neglected or abandoned, beaten, and so on. So that when it comes to specific drug use, the large-scale study showing the relationship in childhood trauma and 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 the addictive use of drugs is absolutely clear. This is also true of addictive eating, so that the more trauma there is in childhood, the greater the risk of obesity, a huge correlation between the two. So we're looking at, first of all, the effects of trauma, and you have to understand trauma has two aspects to it. There's those things that shouldn't happen to a child, such as the sexual abuse, the abandonment, the neglect, that's one part of it. But there's another more hidden part of trauma that it's not what shouldn't happen, it's what should have happened but didn't. And we now know that for healthy brain development and healthy personality development, you need, we talk about Carl Rogers, and Carl Rogers had this phrase called unconditional positive regard, which is the unconditional acceptance of the other human being without any conditions, expectations that they should be this way or that way. You just accept them for who they are. But children need that for their healthy development. The reason Carl Rogers had to give that to his clients because those clients never had that in their childhood. So it's not just the overt uh, insult of uh, sexual or physical abuse or death of a parent or, or, or neglect, but also the lack of attunement, the lack of that empathetic, you talked about empathy, the lack of that empathetic connection, that itself is traumatic to people. And very few children in our society, for social or cultural reasons, get those conditions anymore. So we all grew up high stress. So, to quote you just now, we all grow up highly stressed. I mean, how does this... I don't get it. I mean, an entire population of people, is that what you're saying? An entire culture, an entire population of people are basically doing ourselves in. Well, uh, there's reasons for that. I, I'm just writing a book uh, 
should be published next year, I would think, called Toxic Culture. Yes. And I'm saying that this culture that we live in is actually toxic to human beings. And the reason is, is that the essence of um, the materialistic point of view of human beings is that what matters is matter. In other words, it's whether you, how much matter you own or possess uh, or produce or consume. That's what defines your value. What you actually human emotional and spiritual needs are are not taken into consideration. So when you have people who lose a sense of themselves in childhood because they did not get that unconditional loving acceptance, Carl Rogers, unconditional positive regard, then you have people who develop a deep sense of emptiness, a void inside themselves, which then society comes along and says, you can fill that void by owning, by producing, by controlling material goods. And and human beings are actually competitive and aggressive and consum- consumption-oriented in their basic nature. When you have a culture that tells people that and treats people that way, it feeds into those very earliest anxieties that we are all trained in. So you have a perfect storm of, A, many people lacking the conditions for healthy development in the first place and in the second place living in a society then exploits the effects of that to sell them stuff or to make them behave in certain ways. And the human need is just not addressed. And a human need is what? It's for empathy, it's for connection, it's for love, it's for contact, it's for belonging, it's for community, it's for meaning, it's for value. Value that has not to do with Get, clo- get closer to your speaker kindly, Gabor. I'm starting to lose you a bit on uh, some... Probably as close as I can get. Okay, thank you. So, basic human needs, contact, inclusion, empathy, unconditional regard, are being, yep. are being missed, are being ignored, you're saying, and instead we're replacing the basic human human needs with consumption with materialism with who owns the most with other indices of what it means to be a person which are not natural to who we are as humans that's what you're saying correct yes with externals so externals include uh, what you own what you um, produce what you control but it also includes how you look What's important to you in terms of how to put what is, is, is all about what other people think of you, not what your own values are, but what do people think of me? Um, in other words, it's all external to us, and that drives to satisfy ourselves externally is at the heart of human unhappiness. Is is the United States unique in in this in this kind of? child rearing this upbringing this this w- w- these ways that we have of developing that are antithetical to who we are as people are there countries who are doing better gabor well that's a good question you know i i, I put the same question to somebody i was interviewing last week for my next book talk to culture and my question was am i talking about capitalism or am i talking about the united states and the answer is uh, both actually uh there's no question that what I'm talking about here applies across the board to all industrial civilizations, and in many ways even pre-industrial civilizations. On the other hand, there's also no question that in the modern day, 
these dynamics have been brought to a higher level and nowhere more higher level than the United States. The United States has got the distinction of providing the least maternity leave, for example. Well, the average maternity leave in the States is two weeks. Now, the infant needs to be with the mother for a good nine months at the very least, usually longer, for his physiological and psychological development. Let me underline that before you go on, please. What you're hearing Dr. Gabor Mate say is that maternity leave in the United States is typically two weeks and that human babies need at least nine months with their moms, with their mothers, with, the, with being close. And he's telling us that this two-week maternity leave in and of itself is wrecking havoc with our culture. Is that correct? Did I get it right? Absolutely, because you see the human child at birth is the least mature, the least developed of any mammal. We're born with very small... Um, actually, we're, we're, we're born with a large head. The reason we have to be born at nine months is because the head is growing so fast that if we waited any longer, we wouldn't be born. It also means human beings have to come out relatively prematurely uh, as uh, compared with other animals. Like a horse can run on the first day of life. Yes. Humans can't do that for a year and a half, two years. So the brain development that in the horse occurs in the safety of the uterus, in the human has to occur after, uh, afterwards. So physiologically and, and psychologically, the human is very underdeveloped at birth, which is okay as long as the conditions are right to promote the healthy growth later on. But that condition includes the physical and psychological, emotional presence of the mothering person. And so the breastfeeding and the physical contact, the emotional contact, is actually essential for healthy development. In the absence of that, it's not just that we suffer, it's that we actually experience interference with the brain circuit, with the development of our brain circuits. We now know that the human brain develops an interaction with the environment. And, 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 and the most important aspect of the environment is the what's been called the mutual responsiveness of adult-child relationships. Well, for an adult to be responsive to the child, she has to be there. When we make uh, women on welfare go back to work after a few weeks with their babies and make them travel an hour and a half to some low-paying job, meanwhile the kid is in some hopeless daycare with 10 other kids and very little adult contact, what are we doing? We're actually quite effectively interfering with that child's brain development. The person who you're hearing is Dr. Gabor Mate. He's the author of When the Body Says No, Exploring the Stress-Disease Connection. He's also the author of In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, as well as a book on Attention Deficit Disorder. You're listening to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. If you listen carefully, you're hearing Dr. Mate point out aspects of our culture which are creating, in his words, a toxic culture for all of us. These comments and his research, which you're going to hear more of, stay tuned, has direct implications for policy. One of the policies he's talking about right now is a policy that allows women to have only two weeks off for maternity leave, and you're hearing the implications of that minimal amount of maternity leave. Dr. Mate's work is part of a series we're doing on policy as researched by certain writers, journalists, and scientists. 
you will remember that we interviewed Johann Hari on his book Chasing the Scream and what he taught us about policy with regard to our policies on what's called drugs, substances that alter the mind that have been made illegal. You also heard Dr. Carl Hart of Columbia University, and we talked about his book, High Price. And he has brought to our attention the importance of changing policies with regard to taking patients and making them into criminals. And now you're hearing in this series Dr. Gabor Mate talk about, to begin with, the effect of minimal maternity leave. Now I want to talk to you about your work in Vancouver and the implications of your work in Vancouver for drug policy. Please tell us some about that work. Well, uh, if you're familiar with Johan Hari's book, um, Chasing the Scream, uh, he's got a chapter on my work in that book. That's right. He came to Vancouver, uh, not just because of me, but in part, because uh, there's a number of people here and some policies and some practices here that are rather unique in, uh, in addiction care. So my, what I learned, so the Vancouver, just to put it in a nutshell, uh, the downtown east side of Vancouver is North, North America's most concentrated area of drug use. So we were in a few square block radius, we have more drug users shooting up in the streets and in the back alleys than anywhere else in North America. It's quite a shock to anybody who visits here. So I worked down there for 12 years. As I've indicated before, um, we talk about addictions as a brain disease, as an inherited problem. That's all nonsense. What addiction actually is, is a response to trauma. Uh, and, and all the people I've ever dealt with have been traumatized. And as I said earlier, all the women I'd worked with were sexually abused. <clears throat> all the men were severely traumatized. Trauma is what creates the susceptibility for drug use because, A, all the drugs of abuse are designed or at least have the effect of distracting from or soothing pain. And so the question in addiction is always not why the addiction, but why the pain. And if you understand why people have pain, you have to look at their lives. When you look at the lives of drug addicts, you get nothing but um, mistreatment, childhood neglect, abuse, and so on. And that's not just my particular opinion or impression. It's also what the large-scale studies have shown in the United States, that the more adversity in childhood, exponentially, the greater the risk of addiction. So uh, trauma creates the conditions for addiction, A, because it gives you the pain that you're trying to soothe, number one. Number two, when you're traumatized, uh, you feel ashamed of yourself because the child takes it personally. Therefore, if these bad things are happening to me, it must be my fault. I must be a terrible person. So there's a tremendous shame that you try and run away from through drug use. Number three, trauma itself shapes the brain circuits. So the brain circuits that handle opiates and dopamine these key pleasure, reward, and uh, incentive, motiv- uh, motivation, chemicals, they don't develop properly in the conditions of trauma. So then you use the substances as a way of supplementing what your brain should have given you, but is not giving you because of the trauma that you endured. endured. In other words, it's all rooted in trauma, which also means that the American-led approach, which is very much applied in Canada as well, that you take addicts and you punish them for it, what we're actually doing is we're taking the most tormented and um, neglected and traumatized section of the population 
and they turn to substances to soothe their pain, and then we further traumatize them by isolating them, by putting them in jail, by criminalizing them. What they need is, to go back to your word, empathy, a lot of understanding, and a treatment that's based not on punishment and control, but it's based on... So we do the opposite. And so that's the essence of my... So in my book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, I show the relationship between early childhood adversity and, uh, and addiction and how that could be approached by way of treatment. In my own work with addiction, in one population uh, that I studied, uh, which was a fi- uh, uh, end of uh, 1500, a, um, these were mostly middle-class people, uh, very different from the people that you work with who are street people. Right. In my population there didn't seem to be a very high percentage of them that had terrible childhoods. They, well, I'm, I was, you know, of course I was treating lawyers and doctors and plumbers and, you know, pe- working people and electricians, yeah. uh, and, and it, we didn't seem to have a high percentage of them that had really terrible or abusive childhoods. I'd like to make a comment on that. Yes, please. certainly. Um, and you and I may have to get into a professional disagreement here, or perhaps we'll agree with each other. It's fine either way. You just didn't ask the right question. Well, I, I mean, I delved into their early childhoods as deeply oh. as I could. I know. And in many cases, I also interviewed their families. I got and, it. And certainly some of them uh, were candidates for what we call the Terrible Childhood Award, unquestionably, really bad. And I don't disagree with your finding. Yeah. That the right questions were not being asked. Because I said, as I said earlier, there's two kinds of things that can go wrong. When bad things happen, that shouldn't. But sometimes it's good things that don't happen that should. Yes, yes. And it's that second part that's usually missing when people take a history. So that, in my experience, I've never met a person addicted to anything, whether it's work or the Internet or gambling, whether it's substances, alcohol, cigarettes, whatever it is, never, ever, without any exception, that within three minutes of a conversation, we don't get to the heart of it. And usually what happens with these people is that they weren't beaten, and they weren't neglected, and they weren't sexually abused. I agree with you. So I don't dispute your findings. But neither did they receive attuned, mutual responsive parenting from their parents. Because the parents were usually too distracted, too troubled with their own stuff. Well, would, would you include in that group, for example, uh, having parents who are both working so much that they're unavailable and you get left with child care workers or you get put into some class or you get put somewhere and the folks don't come home till 6 or 7 o'clock at night and there's a quick meal and you go to bed? Is that kind of thing you're talking about? Uh, absolutely, because what does a child actually feel? The child's greatest need is that, that attachment relationship with the parents. What is a child's internal experience when he he or she doesn't get that? How does that make the child feel? How it makes the child feel is, I'm not worthy of their attention. And that hurts a lot. And not to mention, then the parents are stressed, so that even the quality of the interaction with the child is troubled. The parents may be depressed. The parents may have their own relationship issues. Like my children, I have three adult kids. They weren't beaten, they weren't sexually abused, but you know what? They were the children of a workaholic doctor who emotionally was not available for them. And 
their parents, my wife and I, had a very stressed marriage. We loved our kids. We would have done anything for them. But emotionally, they grew up in a very fraught, very tense atmosphere. And uh, if you ask them, were you abused? No. Were you hit? No. Were you were your parents alcoholics? No. None of that. Were your parents jailed? No. Was there a divorce? No. But if you actually look at my children's experience, it's that of kids who are highly sensitive, who are not getting their needs met. And that's the part that I think, if you looked at that population that you described, if I spent three minutes with any of them, we'd quickly find that that was missing for them. I listened to your very courageous TED Talk in which you described your, your addiction to buying classical music. Yeah. Please, please tell our, since you've already gone public with the story, please tell that story to our listeners today. Sure. Well, addiction, first of all, let's define it as any behavior that affords temporary relief, pleasure, and which is associated by craving, <clears throat> but which brings negative consequences in the long term. And the person is unable to give it up despite those negative consequences. Now notice that my definition says nothing about substances. It's any behavior that you crave, find pleasure in, uh, some relief in, but gives you negative consequences and you're unable to give it up. So that could be work, it could be shopping, it could be eating. It could be gambling, it could be spending, it could be smoking, it could be eating, the, what I call the controllable impulses. Sex. Sex. And, and, and you know, even exercise. Mm-hmm. Even meditation. Any time we do something that has negative consequences to self, family, or business would be included. As long as, yeah, well, there has to be craving and temporary relief in it. So the, the reason I say that is because an obsessive-compulsive keeps doing what they want, you know, the, the activity, but they find no pleasure in it. Yes. As the addict, there's always some sense of pleasure, some sense of relief. So, so that's a distinction. Okay. Would you define, is the pleasure a sense of, of removal of pain, or would you include an actual, what it's referred to as getting high? No, it doesn't have to get high. You don't, you don't have to get high because the, although let me tell you something, when it comes to my addiction, uh, shop, shopping, classical compact discs. When I say addiction, I craved it. I found great pleasure in it. Negative consequences, yes. A lot of money was being spent. I was lying to my wife. I was ignoring my kids. It was interfering with my work. Classical I, classical addiction. The classical addiction, yes. 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 And, I uh, mean, the things you say, lying to your wife, ignoring, not uh, taking care of the kids, spending out of control, classical addiction. All that, you know. Now, if you look at it biochemically, what? why do I do that? Now, as much as I love classical music, it's not about the love of the music, because you can love the music without shopping for it compulsively. It's the acquiring, it's the getting, it's the chase, it's the hunt. What does that do? That releases the incentive motivation chemical dopamine in the brain, which is the same hit that the cocaine addicts get, and the nicotine addicts get, and the crystal meth addicts get, and the caffeine addicts get. They get dopamine release. I get dopamine release when I go into a classical music shop and spend a whole lot of money. In other words, 
just like the substance addict, I'm also looking for a change in the state of my brain, and I get that through the behavior. Yes. So in a sense, what you're saying is when you're doing that spending, it's almost identical to the person sitting in a gambling casino hour after hour pulling on the arm of the machine and hoping that something is going to happen there. They're they're, they're changing their internal chemistry by pulling on that arm. That's exactly right. And the motivation, which is the same change that the cocaine addict gets by injecting cocaine. So that... Really, there's one essential or basic universal addiction process. It just finds different way of manifesting itself. And so my uh, classical music or the shopping addiction that I had, very much related to the emptiness that I felt internally in my life, the shame that I felt, the emotional pain I didn't want to deal with but wanted to escape from, which is all based on childhood trauma. And uh, it's no different... Or, or, or I should say different only in degree from the those of my patients. And interestingly enough, Richard, when I spoke to my patients about this, people that were desperately using heroin and cocaine and crystal meth, they just laughed and they said, yeah, we get it. They got it. They got it. It's in other people say, how can you compare yourself to the heroin addict? Well, I'm not comparing myself. I'm actually saying that the process is very similar. Obviously, my addiction is much more respectable, not nearly so harmful, there's significant differences, but the similarities are really interesting. I would take issue with a person who would say that you're, that what you were dealing with was less serious, because if it had the negative impact on your three children that you say that it does have, and I believe you, then it's just as serious as any other kind of addiction. And Because, you know, we have in our culture this kind of hierarchy of whose addiction is worse than somebody else's addiction. You know, the heroin shooters are at the bottom of the barrel, and the, and the people who go into a store and spend $4,000 on shoes are sort of higher up. But you and I both know that they're, they're equally dangerous because they're destroying not only a life, but they're having a negative impact on the lives of those around. Absolutely. You can make the argument that at least it doesn't give you HIV. Well, that's true. But, you know, again, the, the, the differences are less interesting than the similarities, as you and I would both agree. Of course. I mean, if you're wealthy enough and you have the funds like William Burroughs, you can shoot heroin all your life and not get into trouble with HIV. <laughs> all you need is a clean needle and clean... That's, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, Ultimately, and what you say here about the hierarchy of of addictions that we um, create in our minds, fundamentally, when you ask the question, why are we so down on the drug addicts, why are we so critical, so judgmental, very simple, because we don't want to see our similarities with them. Yes, I mean, how many alcoholics have I treated who look down their noses on, quote, drug addicts as if they have something so much worse? And then you have the workaholic. Who looked on? Who looked on upon the alcoholic? They yeah. look. They look down upon everybody because they're making money from being a, 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 a workaholic, and they've got funds to support their position. Yes. Which goes back to what we said about the toxic culture, because we actually live in a culture that rewards these people for their toxic behavior. You know, like I was a workaholic doctor. The world loved me. I was always available. That's right. That's what right. Imp- what was the impact on me, on my children, on my wife? I see we're taking, we got a caller coming in here, uh, Gabor. I'm going to take a call. Okay. Uh, let's see who that is, Michael. Okay. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Coming in here, uh, Gabor. I'm Hi. 
Uh, I'm wondering, though. I try to help the addict, but the addict hurts me, hits me. So how do I help the addict? What does the addict do, this lady said? I couldn't oh. quite... Please tell us, are you talking about helping another person or the addict within yourself? Uh, helping another person. They hit me. Physically? Uh, yeah, physically. Or oh. they hurt me in some way. Okay, let's hear what Dr. Mate says about that. Uh, well, thank you for the phone call. I'm going to say something very radical to you. You're not actually trying to help the addict. You're trying to help yourself. Um, you can't stand the way he, this person is, and you want to change them so you can feel better. And uh, they, I know you believe you're trying to help them, and I know that in your heart you wish they weren't suffering. I, I, I don't dispute that. But what you're really trying to do is you're trying to change them so that you won't have to suffer so much. And it cannot be done. Uh, the change has to come from within. And the question for you really is, why would you even be with somebody that would hit you when you're trying to point out to them some truth about their lives? Well, that's only because something in you needs to be validated. Uh, there's some pain in you that you're trying to soothe by being with this person. And I would say that has to do with your own childhood. So with all respect to you, my invitation to you is to look at your own life, your own childhood, put all the attention on yourself, and take all the attention of this addicted person. It cannot be done. And I do have a chapter in my book on addiction, on, on, on caregivers and families. You only have one choice to make. Can I be with this person the way they are and really accept how they are, including all their behaviors? Or can I not be? But to stay with them and try and change them, that's absolutely toxic to you and to the other person. The voice you just heard was that of Dr. Gabor Mate. We're talking about his book, When the Body Says No, Exploring the Stress Disease Connection. We're talking to him about his book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. We're talking to him about how we have created a toxic culture which in which we're all suffering. We're talking here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Gabor, some time ago, I spoke with Rupert Sheldrake, and he taught us about his theories of morphic resonance, how something can happen that educates, for example, the birds in England, and suddenly the birds in France have attained that same level of education, that there's, yeah. there's a resonance that goes on in the universe where information is transmitted. Yeah. You tell a story in your life that I would like you to tell our, our, our listeners now about a phone call that your mother made when you were two months old to the doctor in Budapest uh, telling him about your crying. Would you tell us that story? Because it's a story that sounds like one of both mor morphic resonance and how an atmosphere can pervade. Well, you, you may need to tell me how, how this uh, relates to morphic resonance, but uh, I'll tell you the story. Um, I, um, so I was born in Budapest, Hungary in 1944, January, so 71 and a half years ago now. And um, the Jewish parents, and this is just before the Germans occupied Hungary. And so in March of 44, when I'm two months of age, the Wehrmacht, the German army, marches into Budapest. The very next day, now the Jews of Hungary had been spared the genocide up to that point, for the most part. But now something horrible was coming. They didn't know what, but they knew that the horror had just entered into their lives in the form of the 
Nazi occupation. And um, the very next day, my mother phones the pediatrician to say, uh, would you please come and see my son Gabor, because he's crying all the time. And the doctor said, well, of course I will come, but I should tell you, all my Jewish babies are crying. And the, for me, the point of the story has always been that, of course, as an infant, I would not have known anything about Hitler or genocide or, or Nazis or war. What would I have responded to was actually the tension, pain of my mother. In other words, the emotional states of the parents have a significant impact. In fact, the dominant impact on the internal experience of the child. This had nothing to do with whether or not my mother loved me or not. That was not in question. It had to do with her own state of mind, which was fully justified given what happened in the next two months, including the death of my grandparents in Auschwitz. And to go back to your point, Richard, about the um, people that you treated that seem to have happy or at least acceptable childhoods, the part that we have to dwell into is the actual emotional states of the parents, not whether kids were badly treated, but what was the state of mind of the parent, because the state of mind of the parent has a huge impact on the child. And so that's the point of that story, is it's just how sensitive infants are to the emotional situation of their parents, and, and with all the goodwill in the world, when parents are stressed, that is an impact on the child. So, uh, if, if I mean, it's the morphic resonance, though. I'd like to understand that because because the if what the babies in Budapest were feeling was the was the fear in their mothers, yeah. then that we see that direct connection. But I am putting forth the possibility that the entire atmosphere of Budapest was one of extreme fear when that was going on, so that not only were those babies in terror, but the entire population was in terror because of not something that was happening, but the fear of something that was about to be happening. And that, that creation, which is what, you know, it, it, when we do it and nothing is going to happen, we call it catastrophic thinking. But when we do it and something is going to happen, that's a whole different situation. And what I'm trying to bring that towards here is, if that was an example of fear being transmitted, what is it like in this country to be a lesbian or a gay person or a black person or perhaps in some areas a Jewish person, knowing that you're living in a culture that is non-accepting? What is the fear level? And if we examine those people, would we find more of these addictions, whether it be spending or drinking or drugging or, or smoking or what have you, will we find it more in certain subcultures, some certain populations? Well, uh, what you certainly find, if you look at uh, racial determinants of health is that blacks have far more hypertension, high blood pressure. Yes. Black men are, I think, have double the risk of dying of prostate cancer. Yes, yes, I've read that too. Um, black women have more of a risk of breast cancer. And on and on and on. Um, so that, you know, th there's no um, stress in our society. Stress as it affects health that is um, racially, um, purely racially determined. But what is true is that the stresses fall more heavily in certain populations. And those populations suffer more earlier death, they suffer uh, um, more disease. If you look at 
both the United States and Canada, for example, when it comes to the First Nations population, the Aboriginal population, or the Native Indian population, if you like, uh, in Canada and the States as well, I know this, they have much higher rates of addiction, suicide, depression, ADHD, and so on than other populations do. And it all has to do with the historical trauma that they endured and with the racism that they continue to endure. So that uh, these broad social factors in history has huge impact on individual health. Again, that affects everybody, but most specifically, it affects um, racially... Um, Racial minorities. Racial, racial discriminated against yes. minorities. Jo- Gabor, we have um, about yeah. seven, seven or eight minutes left, and I want to address the following. If we now hand you a magic wand, and with that wand, you can create policy, government policy, in Canada, in the United States, in the world. What are some of the policy changes that you would make with your magic wand immediately? First of all, the broad policy approach has to be, obviously, the prevention of problems rather than the um, constant um, chase after symptoms. If we understand that addiction is a symptom based on childhood loss or trauma, then we would examine the conditions of childhood and ask ourselves, what do people need for healthy childhood development? So, as I say in my book on addiction, the first, the prevention of addiction needs to begin at the first prenatal visit. Because we already know that stresses on pregnant women actually help increase the risk of addiction in the child. So you, look at, you have to look after pregnant women. And you mentioned, of course, the extension of maternity leave. Then, of course, the maternity. Then, birth practices that interfere with healthy, normal birth, which are important for the child's physiological development. I mean, when, when some areas of the British Columbia and Canada, right, if we have a cesarean section rate of between 35 and 40 percent, which means over a third of women can't deliver vaginally anymore. Well, that's a travesty. That's a real distortion of nature. And so, there's many policies on prenatal care, childbirth, and the postnatal care of infants, number one. Number two, given that the most important condition environmentally of healthy childhood development is nurturing contacts with adults, we would maximize rather than minimize nurturing contact with adults. That means that schools and daycares, if children have to go to schools and daycares, those places need to become places of warm emotional attachment more than of pedagogy. So we have the whole approach to education and child rearing has to change from a academic one to an emotion-based one, <coughs> from a ped- pedagogical one to one of empathy. Um, Let me underline that. You hear what he's saying? More focus on empathy more focus on human feelings rather than content course material. Then um, you would identify families at risk and you put your resources into those families. You, you, we know that nursing visits and we know that 
support early on makes a big difference to development later on. So instead of putting all this money into jailing people and punishing them for having been traumatized, how about putting the money into preventing that trauma in the first place? When it comes to dealing with people who are actually addicted, um, well, then recognize that the addiction is nothing but a marker of and a, and a consequence of trauma. Treat these people compassionately. Give them the psychological, emotional support so they can go past that trauma. The essence of trauma, as my friend Peter Levine points out, is um, disconnect from yourself. Disconnect from yourself. Absolutely, yeah. That's what happens. And, and which, by the way, I would argue, is also at the basis of all physical illnesses like multiple sclerosis and cancer and so on. That's what I argue in my book when the body says no. So that when people are diagnosed with any kind of illness, whether it's addiction or whether it's physical illness of any kind, instead of just dealing with the physical aspects of the illness, which may be necessary, I'm a doctor, I'm not against that, but let's also deal with how to help people reconnect to themselves. That I know, for example, with multiple sclerosis, many people have told me after they read one, but he says no, that it changed their lives because they realized that the flare-ups of their disease was not disconnected from their lives. It had to do with stress that they didn't realize they were experiencing. Once they can say no, once they connect to themselves and their gut feelings and they say, no, I don't want this, I don't want this situation, guess what? The disease doesn't have to come along and give you that message that this is too much for you. Almost as if the actual irritation and, and fire of the of the stress uh, demyelinates the sheath. Causes the inflammation. Exactly. Causes the inflammation. Exactly. And uh, so that what I'm saying is that when it comes to medical care, we need to be dealing with root causes as well as effects. As opposed to right now, we're only dealing with the effects, but not root causes. As you, so, you know, I could go on, but fundamentally, what we need is social policy that's informed by the whole needs of the human person. As you well know, the United States has led the way in what's been referred to uh, globally as the war on drugs, in which yeah. we took the prescription rights away from physicians like yourself, and yeah. we, we criminalized all those people. In yeah. fact, at one point, we, we actually prosecuted 20,000 physicians in this country uh, for uh, continuing to do the work that they'd been doing before the uh, criminalization. What progress, if any, is being made in Canada towards reversing this and uh, allowing patients to be patients rather than be criminals? Well, first of all, as I pointed out in my book on addiction, there's no war on drugs. You, you can't make war on inanimate objects. What there really is is a war on drug addicts. That's right. Uh, and uh, in other words, we're making people suck. People who suffered in early childhood, we're making them suffer again. That's basically what we're doing. So, unfortunately, the Canadian federal government is very conservative, very hidebound, right-wing, ideologically determined um, administration right now. So they're not making much change possible. They're making it worse by increasing sentences. Having said that, in Canada, particularly in Vancouver, we've had some policies that are quite pioneering, including a place where I worked for a couple of years, the supervised injection site, where people bring their own drugs, and they actually get to inject without fear of being arrested. Yes. 
inject under medical supervision so that if they overdose, they resuscitate it. They're given clean needles, throw out water, help to inject properly. Now, this is a harm reduction measure, and it actually has saved lives. It has re reduced disease benefits, medical costs. And for all that, the Canadian government tried to shut it down, and they were stopped from doing so only by a decision of the Supreme Court. But it's the only one in North America, and the only one in Canada, which is, there should be one. There should be several in every major city. Well, I think with your work, Gabor, and we're, we're wrapping up right now, I think with your work and the work of, uh, of Johan Hari and Carl Hart, and, and perhaps also Robert Whitaker, if you're familiar with his work, Anatomy of an Epidemic, I think we're going to be seeing some policy changes. And I want to thank you for your distinguished career and for taking the time to meet with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Richard.